If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're in the Gospel of John. As you know, I say this every Sunday, the title of that of, of the series of messages that we're doing throughout the whole book of John. The theme of the book is one word, and that's believe. Believe, believe, believe. John's pretty binary when it comes to this whole idea of believe. It's not an either-or situation. John begins and, and chooses the narratives and, and the stories and the events in the life of our Savior with the same demand, the same demand. Now, this is counterintuitive because we like to have our options open. You want, you want God, we want God to give us a selection of options and which one I like the best and fits me the most. I'll choose that one and it's okay. But that's not so in the gospel, particularly in the gospel of John. John says you either believe or you don't believe. But there's no such thing as a middle ground. Uh, believe, believe. Believe, And so he's in this hurry, and this is the emphasis here in the Gospel of John. Uh, we come to John chapter 6, which is an amazing chapter, but the chapter is dominated by an event that takes place early on, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. I've said this a ton of times. It's more than 5,000. It's probably about 20,000 people conservatively were fed with a couple of pickled fish and, and, and some barley loaves, which are not big loaves. They're probably little buns, as we saw several weeks ago. And God did an extraordinary thing in that, in, in that miracle, and, and, and it becomes quite the issue. Uh, Jesus is going, by the way, with his disciples to get away and pray, and then the, the crowd meets him, and they're, they're interrupted. And so then Jesus sends his disciples away after this amazing miracle, and they cross over to see a Galilee, and Jesus said, I'll see you a little later. And uh, then there's a storm, and Jesus is taking a shortcut. He walks on the water, and he calms the storm, and they get on the other side. And this is when uh, he... Uh, is confronted by three groups of people. I've entitled the message today, You Miss the Point. You Miss the Point. Have, have you ever had, uh, yeah, of course, this is, this is rhetorical. Have you ever heard a joke or a story and you missed it? I mean, you laughed because everybody else was laughing. <laughs> oh, what was that? You pretend, pretend as if you got it. <laughs> don't ever do that. I've tried that. It don't work. Don't pretend. And, and so we, we've all been there. Um, have you ever been so confident about something only to find out that you were wrong? I mean, you just knew it was dead to rights. I mean, I was thinking about this. I thought about our youngest son when he was like, uh, I think he was a freshman in high school or something like that. I had been on his case about stop doing this certain thing. And uh, so finally, I, I just knew for sure that he did it, and I really put the hammer down. I mean, I put the hammer down. In fact, I wouldn't even let him respond to me. He said, close your mouth, man. And I just put the hammer down. I just knew I was right. Well, come to find out, I was desperately wrong. In fact, I was so wrong that I left my office. I went to his high school. I pulled him out of his class, and I begged him to forgive me. You ever, you, ever, you ever been so confident about something, only to discover that you were wrong? Have you ever wanted something so desperately, you wanted a certain kind of car or a house or whatever, you wanted something so desperately, only to find out that it wasn't quite what you expected? 
and it costs more than you were prepared to pay? Well, this is the flavor of this narrative. This is what's taking place here. Um, that that they, these folks, three groups of people just missed it. They just missed it. Now, I need to warn you here, as I walk through this passage, that, you know, I tell younger preachers this all the time, that whenever you preach through the scriptures, be careful, don't adopt a tone that doesn't match the text. Your tone has got to match the text. Sometimes the text is celebratory, so your tone needs to be celebratory. Sometimes the text is a warning and a rebuke, and with integrity, your tone needs to be that way. And this is one of these texts that's not very positive. It's a warning and a rebuke because these folks have missed it. They missed the point. There are three groups that missed the point. One is the crowd. We'll see this in a moment. They missed it. Secondly, the religious leaders missed it. And interestingly enough, thirdly, some of his own disciples missed it. Now, the outline is pretty simple here because in each case, there, 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 there is this, this confusion slash expectation, and then Jesus gives correction slash clarification. The masses are confused, the people, and so Jesus has to correct them. The religious leaders are confused, and so Jesus has to correct them. And some of his disciples are confused, so Jesus has to correct them. First of all, the masses, they are confused. They are confused. I mean, they had another motivation, another set of stuff. Now, here you have it. Jesus crosses over the other side. Now, these are the people that he had done this incredible miracle for. And so as he crosses over, he runs into them. Here's the confusion, picking it up here in chapter 6, verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum on the other side, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I took a little shortcut. When did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you, are, you ate your fill of the loaves. I think you need to notice this, that Jesus cuts to the chase. He doesn't give any little upfront, you know, how we would respond. Somebody say, hey, when you get here, oh, good to see you. Yeah, I saw you in the crowd the other day there. Yeah, see me. I, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, you're in the front of the line. I passed stuff out to you. Jesus doesn't put any, any pillows, any fluff, any cotton, any cushion in between their greeting and how he responds. Jesus gets down to the bottom line. Because he understood that they were disingenuous. And he wanted them to know that he knew the real reason why they were coming. And basically, when he says, look, you, 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 (laughs) come on, man, come on. You're not, you're not here. You're not here because you believe in me. You're here because I did something for you. I did a miracle for you. You see, I think there's some implications here. Um, 
the way Jesus responds to these people, and I, I, I would suggest that there are at least these three implications which reveal their motivations. Number one is this. They wanted to be wowed by Jesus. They wanted to be wowed by him, and that's why they came. There was no heart commitment to him. There was no heart commitment to what he believed. They wanted to be wowed by him. And by the way, I think we need to be very careful, very careful. I run into Christians all the time who get, who, uh, uh, get into the manifestations of miracles and they commit idolatry because they're more into the miracle than they are into the Messiah. They're more into the miracle than they are into the message. And it's addictive. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can. But boy, you missed it. You just, you just want, want me to wow you. Do something more. Do something more. Do something more. I think there's a second implication here. Not only did they want to be wowed by Jesus, they wanted, I think, to use Jesus. They wanted to use him. Hey, man, I'm going to get close to you. He's like, hey, you know what? I can find you useful, which bumps up against the third implication, probably extension of the second, and that is that they wanted to selfishly benefit from Jesus. That's what they wanted to do. So Jesus is really articulating their confusion. This is the level of your relationship with me. And listen, you need to pay attention to this because this is exactly where we live. This is exactly where we live. This is the brand of Christianity that's in our culture. We want a Jesus who will benefit our lifestyle. We want to leverage him and use him to do better and to have more. We want the goods. But they missed the point about the miracle, and this is where, this is where, the, this is where the correction comes in. Jesus said, you know, you missed that whole point about the miracle. You missed it. Missed it, missed it, missed it. You thought it was about me just feeding hungry people. Jesus, the ATM. Jesus, the mega Walmart in the, in the, in the wilderness. Here I am. Just come get to me. For, come to me. Get whatever you want. Here it is. I'm your source. You missed the whole point of the miracle. You missed it at all. The first thing he says is that the miracle was a picture of eternal life. Not about your bellies being filled. Look at verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you missed the point. No, uh, 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 no. The miracle was a pathway to show you your real need for eternal life. You miss this thing. Jesus is rebuking their purely materialistic notions about making him king. See, don't be fooled by that. They didn't want to make him king in the, in, in, in the messianic sense. Their desire to make him king was to get somebody in place that can, could, could continue to benefit them. That was the motivation behind that. Jesus said, you, you just missed this whole point. 
That's the point of the miracle. The miracle was a pathway to point you toward eternal life. But you made that pathway the destination. And by the way, that last line in verse 27, it says, on him God has set his seal. Set his seal? Set his seal? Well, I think there are two things that, he's, that he means by, 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 by including this. He said, look, look, you need to understand that the sign was about me, the location, me. Wasn't about the bread, wasn't about the fish, wasn't even about the miracle. It was about me. It was about who I am. It was about worshiping me, not what I've done for you. And not only that, I think the second implication of that, ex- that expression on him, God has set his seal, is that Jesus is saying is, I am God's agent in this world. And y'all miss that. Y'all miss, you, you so elevated what I did for you. You so heightened what I did for you. You so heightened the miracle that you have lost the message. And now you're running around here and you're asking me to do some more stuff for you. He also clarifies the fact that this was a call to believe. That's what verse 29 is all about. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. When he says this is the work of God that you believe in, he's saying this is the purpose of all the miracles. This is the purpose of all the miracles. This is the purpose of all of the miracles. Not that you become obsessed with a manifestation of the supernatural. The purpose of all the miracles is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the purpose. You missed it. You missed it. The fish and the loaves, they were about me. It's a call to believe. The work of God, he says, requires faith. And the emphasis is in faith in me. Not in faith, faith in what I've done for you, but faith in me. And the third point of correction in all of this to the crowd, he says, look, look, you, you really, really, really missed the point of the illustration. I said that before. It's a statement that I am who and what you need. I am who and what you need. Where do you get that from? Well, drop your eye down, if you would, to verse, uh, verse 35. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, again, to the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then verse 40, he says, For this is the will of the Father, of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that, that, that you know, you, you, you are suggesting, if you look at verse 34, the people were suggesting that the bread of heaven needed to be given to them again and again. So they are hung up on this physical, were hung up on the physical, and they missed the whole point of it. And what Jesus is saying is that, look, 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 look. Once you have me, you will never go hungry. So again, the miracle is all about me. But you've made it about you, haven't you? 
You know, we need to stop viewing God's work through the lens of our assumptions and preferences. We need to stop viewing God's work through the lens of our assumptions and preferences. I have discovered most of us, including this old boy up here, get disappointed in God and get discouraged. Why? Because we feel as if God has let us down. Well, he has. He's let us down for a reason. Because he's saying, Crawford, your assumptions and your preferences are not right. You're assuming some stuff that's wrong. You're assuming some stuff that's wrong. I don't exist to make you happy, and I will not say yes to all of your prayers. I am not on demand, Mr. Miracle. I am who you need, and I am what you need, but I will not be typecast. And this is what Jesus is saying to, to the crowd, to the crowd. Their personal faith in Jesus is the means by which they receive eternal life. It certainly wasn't about the earthly kingdom. Well, let me hustle on here. The second group of people that missed it, the leaders, the leaders missed it. The leaders missed it. Now, you know, I'm being gracious here when I say that they missed it. These dudes never wanted to get it. Uh, and I, I'm not being unkind here. Please, I'm not being unkind. Uh, you know, some people get upset when you talk too strongly about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. And my response has always been, okay, forget what Crawford has said. You go back and you read the Gospels with integrity and these encounters that Jesus had with them, and you tell me that their motives were wonderful and kind and open and generous. They weren't. Jesus was a threat to them, including this whole situation of feeding the multitude. Can you imagine? They show up there on the other side, and there's thousands of these people, and there's Jesus again, and these religious leaders are getting intimidated by what's going on, and so they're confused, and that's a very generous way of saying that they had issues with him, and uh, so they, just, they decide to bust them and try to embarrass him. So what do they say? Well, here in verse 41, it says, so the Jews grumbled. The expression, the Jews there, uh, John is not being anti-Semitic when he says the Jews there. Uh, John was a Jew. And, uh, but when he says the Jews throughout the gospel of John, over 90% of the time, what he means by that, it's his shorthand way of saying not all the Jews, but the religious leaders. That's who he's talking about here. He says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. You can just picture this. They're standing in the crowd. These leaders are there, and they're grumbling. They said, oh, what is he talking about a bread? And we know. And then they, they want to put him in his place. They say, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Come on, man. Seriously? We know where you were born. You were born in Bethlehem, by the way. It wasn't even inside the place. You know, we know that. And if truth be told, there's a word out on the block that your mama wasn't married. You grew up in Nazareth. 
Nazareth? Nazareth. Hicktown, man. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And we know your parents. You know, your dad, decent little carpenter action going on there, nothing to brag about. You know, what they were saying was basically, and this is not a stretch here, they're saying, come on, Jesus, get up off your high horse. You're no better than anybody else. You're no better than anybody else. And then not only that, Jesus goes on to give this little word picture analogy, and they screw up on that too. They miss that as well. You look down at verse 52, and there's this another accusation. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us this flesh to eat? They missed the point of the analogy, which has more to do with the cross and his death that he would die. So how does Jesus respond? Well, to the first one that, hey, you know, you're like everybody else, Uh, it's interesting, Jesus made no attempt to correct their ignorance. No attempt. He didn't. Didn't do it. In fact, instead of correcting their ignorance, he rebuked them. And in so many words, he says, you're not in a position to judge me. Uh, Look at verse 44. Verse 44. He says... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You park there and think about those words. Think about those words. How are you going to know who I am and you don't even have a relationship with me? That's what he's saying. That's exactly what it's saying. How are you, 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 you're not even interested. But more specifically here, here, here in the text, what Jesus is saying to them is that um, you are helplessly lost in sin and unbelief unless God draws you. You're hopeless. And by the way, by the way, this is true of the nature of salvation. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, for the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, cannot understand them. Uh, You know, I've said this here before, but we need to be very careful now when we communicate our testimony and share with people about how we came to know Christ. Don't, Don't become your own source of salvation. The truth of the matter is, we did not find him, he found us. And he opened our eyes. And he gave us the gift of faith to believe. And so when he says to these religious leaders, look, I know you know your stuff, I know you know your background, I know you know your content, I know you know the Old Testament. Most of you have memorized the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. you got all these laws and governor law, but I'm here to tell you, you can't have a relationship with God unless he draws you. Jesus didn't dialogue with them. I know that sounds cold-blooded. But he made statements to them rather than have interactions with them. Because he knew that their hearts were not right. It was a waste of God's air and oxygen 
to debate these folks. And by the way, by the way, the second one, when they miss, messed up the word picture, the imagery, the analogy that he was given about himself, uh, Jesus explains here, beginning in verse 50, well, verse 52, then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us this flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Of course, he's talking about, he's talking about the atonement. He's talking about his death on the cross. He's speaking of his crucifixion. But they, they, they didn't understand it. In fact, I think he's making three statements here as you read the rest of, through uh, uh, verse 58. The first statement that he's making is, is that real reliable food sustains his followers spiritually. That's what I'm talking about. Secondly, he says, when we feast on Christ, we enjoy a mutual abiding relationship with Christ. What I'm about ready to do is the will of the Father, and if you come in communion with me, you come to know me, we will mutually abide with one another. In fact, he will unpack that over in John chapter 15 when he talks about the upper room discourse and abiding in Christ. And then thirdly, he says, those who partake of Christ are secure in Christ. So the way he responds to the religious leaders, not by dialogue, but by delineation, he, 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 by discourse, he says, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. But of course, you can't understand that because you don't have a relationship with me. Strong language, but that's a passage. But then there's this third and final group who didn't get it. This is an ouchie because this is close to our neighborhood. The crowd missed it. The religious leaders missed it. But thirdly, some of his own followers missed it. Now, the, the, the deal is, again, and you've heard me say this a truckload of time here, when you read these narratives, the problem is that we're several thousand years on this side of the events, and so you read them as historical facts and this kind of thing, and you lose a little bit of the emotional context here. But you have to understand, you put yourself there. I mean, you're standing in the middle of this crowd. There are hundreds, probably thousands of people that made it over there. And you got the religious, I mean, the crowd there. Jesus has just turned to the crowd and kind of said, mm, mm, y'all missed it, Jack. And then the religious leaders, oh, my goodness. Jesus has the gall and the audacity not even to dialogue with them but rebuke them in very strong terms and say, you don't even have a relationship with the Father. Now, you're, you're among those disciples not the 12, but the, there, there, there were other disciples uh, that followed Jesus, and maybe you'd been hanging with him now about a year, year and a half. You've seen some of these miracles. You've heard some of these discourses and this kind of thing, and you're really kind of interested in him, and all of a sudden you go, Arr! Listen to their confusion. Actually, I don't even think that they were confused, because based upon what they say, They had an expectation that Jesus wasn't meeting. Hmm. 
Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, don't let this fool you. He's not, they don't say it's a hard saying in the sense that they couldn't understand it. No, 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 no. That wasn't the issue. Uh, what made it a hard saying is because they could understand it. In fact, they got it. That's what's made it a hard saying. No, they got it. By hard here, what he, what, what he meant is that it's not in the sense it was hard to understand, but in the sense that it was harsh and offensive. Uh, The text doesn't say this, but the fact that they call them disciples, they had been with Jesus and around Jesus, around the peripheral of his followers, sort of like if there was an inner circle just in that outer circle of folks, and they'd heard these things before. I I, I think their level of of understanding was a, a lot deeper than the crowd, and of course, far deeper than the religious leaders, and I think they got it. I think they got it. And I think their mouths fell open because, oh, did you hear what he just said and to whom he said it? Come on, man. Jesus, you're offending a lot of people. You're certainly not making it easy. You know, people who find themselves, I'm going to say something here that's really strong, but I want you to hang in there. People who find themselves apologizing for the truth of God's word may not be true followers of Christ. Let me explain what I mean by this. Any person who is a follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit inside of them. And even if a particular truth is very hard, the Spirit of God always says amen to the truth of God's word, no matter how hard it is. Now, I want to balance that off by saying I am not talking about, there, there, there's some folks who, who can preach the truth, but their tone is so dismissive and angry and all of that, that that's wrong. That's wrong. We should not be condescending or dismissive or angry and this kind of thing. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm talking about is the raw content of truth. And any believer that is apologizing for the content of the word of God needs to, or any professed believer who's apologizing for the content of the word of God needs to sit down and examine whether or not they're saved because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. And what John talks about later on in his epistle is that the, the anointing, meaning the Spirit of God, discerns that which is right and that which is false. And no believer, no believer has a right to edit what God said in this book. None. Well, verse 66 says, as a result of this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him.
We can't go there, Jesus. They concluded that following Jesus is too expensive. Oh, I've met a bunch of folks like that. Bunch of them. There have been folks who come in and out of our church who are like that. Has nothing to do with the strategy of the ministry or nothing to do with, with, with what we, all, all that stuff. Quite frankly, it just has everything to do with I wouldn't do that. Price is too high. Costs too much. It's too expensive. So how does Jesus deal with them? Well, he basically says two things. One, and I've already said it, They lack spiritual insight. That's verse 63. It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. The implication from this is that they needed spiritual insight. So you're you're responding to me on a preferential level. You're picking and choosing the truths that you want to accept or believe. You're not listening to the spirit of God. You're responding to what makes you comfortable. Not what God says. Not what he says at all. And then he says in so many words, verses 61 to 65, is that they, 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 they lacked authentic faith. Authentic faith. Uh, much like the crowd, uh, they were not really committed to Jesus in a heart way. They may have had a faith that was intellectual assent and agreed this way, but in terms of their hearts being touched and their hearts being changed and their hearts being engaged with with the person of Jesus, there was not that attraction or attachment. And there are a lot of people in church like that. A lot of folks in church like that who have done this their whole lives, done this their whole lives, and then when something was hard, they go, oh, what? It's not what I signed up for. If these disciples find Jesus' claims and his authority and his language to be offensive, guess what? Let's just look at what he says here. Verse 64 says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He says all of this over against the backdrop of where he's going, and that's the cross. And, And I suppose he's saying and thinking in his mind, okay, that's fine. If what I said really bothers you, you find my language offensive, what are you going to think when you see me hanging on a cross? That's scandalous. Now, let's, let's remember, we're, we're the ones that have, have made the cross a wonderful thing. But Jesus died a common criminal's death 
on a cross. And that's scandalous. He says, if you can't take what I just said now, where do you see that crown of thorns smashed on my skull? Where, where do you see my hands pierced uh, with, with, those, with those spikes and my feet pierced? And where, where do you see my, my back open? Where do you see the blood dripping? Where do you see them mocking me? So what I said didn't make you comfortable? And then Jesus turns to his disciples. Verse 67. The 12. They're standing there. They've had a front row seat to this. The crowd. The religious leaders. And this group who have been hanging with them maybe a year or more. Jesus says to them, verse 67. Do you want to go away as well? You too? I, I, I got to tell you, I, I don't, I could be wrong on this, but I don't think Jesus asked the question for his sake. I think in context, Jesus more than likely Ask the question for their sake. They needed to give a response more than he needed to hear it. So he says, Peter, James, John, Anthony, Bartholomew, what's up, guys? Thomas, what's up? I think what he was saying was this. I need you to understand that I don't do negotiating relationships. You don't negotiate a relationship with me. You don't bargain a relationship with me. You surrender to me. And the other thing that I think Jesus was saying, I want you to hear me on this. I feel this in my bones. I want you to hear me on this. We live in a culture where marketing is everything. We live in a culture in which I am the center of everything. We live in a society in which everything revolves around my likes, my dislikes, what I prefer, what I don't want. And we position everything that way, including how we do church. But you need to hear me today. You need to hear me today. Jesus never, ever ever change the truth to accommodate people or to keep a following ever and listen listen to me I, I, I need to tell you this I am not saying God knows we, we, we need to be all things all men that we might win them we need to understand the clothes of the culture we don't need we need to we need to understand how people respond I think all those methods are absolutely wonderful and this kind of thing I hate to make it so personal, but look, I'm too old to do recreational preaching, all right? So listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. All of that's wonderful. 
This has not happened here. I enjoy the relationship that we have with our leaders and elders here. We're on the same page. So what I'm saying is just hypothetical here. But if there ever came a time in which a group of leaders said to me, you either change the truth of your preaching or you leave, I'll give you my resignation within 60 seconds. The truth is not for sale. Now, we're talking about grown folks' Christianity here. So as I land a plane, I want to encourage us to back off from this negotiating with Jesus. First of all, you ain't got no chips. (laughs) All right, let's just, let's keep it real. What do you got that he needs? Back away from that nonsense. If you continue doing that, you're headed toward conflicted disaster. We come to Jesus not with an exchange mindset. We come to him with our hands held up high. Surrender. Surrender. Remember, these folks backed away from Jesus, all of them, whether it is the, the crowd or the religious leaders or these, some of these disciples, they all backed away from him for four same reasons. And quite frankly, as I study the passage, these are the four things that I've seen time and time again, even today, with folks. They backed away from him for these four reasons. Number one, he rejected their desire to make him their symbol of power. You know, that's what the crowd wanted. And really, that's, that's what these disciples wanted too. They wanted Jesus. When they said they came to make him king, don't let that fool you. They weren't talking about, they weren't talking about him establishing his messianic kingdom. They wanted to make him king so they can get more of what they wanted. And he would become their symbol of power. They backed away from Jesus, number two, because his demand for personal faith. No, you got to believe me and not what I've done for you. You've got to believe me, not what I've given to you. Thirdly, they backed away from Jesus because of his teaching on the atonement, the cross. That was offensive. And Jesus says, sorry, but Anne, what, so? I don't want to pay that price. Fourthly, they backed away from Jesus because it's emphasis that salvation is a work of God. No, honestly, you can't help God do anything. It's not about you and Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You can't contribute to your salvation. I've said this here a lot. But some of us need to stop wasting our lives fighting Jesus. One, that's a battle that you're not going to win. Two, you're assigning yourself to misery and superficiality. 
Some of us need to get rid of this hybrid perspective of Christianity. My demands and a bit of what Jesus wants, and we'll make it work. He wants a faith that is authentic and real, that will not pimp or prostitute what he does for us. But it's placed in all that he is and who he is. We need that kind of purity of faith. We are our own inhibitors. His truth is not going to move. Who he is is not going to change. Jesus is not who we expect he is, but he is more than we could ever imagine. Let's stand together. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, and maybe you've been in church and maybe you thought you were, but you may be in the camp of some of these people who followed. You need to say right now, and you can say right this very moment, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn from my sin. I relinquish. I don't ask you to meet me on my terms. I come to you just as I am to trust you for all that you are. And if you do that, Jesus Christ is in your heart and life. But don't tell him, don't tell him how to run your life. You'll be sorely disappointed. If you surrender to him, you'll have more joy than you ever knew existed. There'll be Stephen ministers, staff members, and elders who are in this service up front. would love to pray with you at the end of the service. My wife and I uh, meant to say this earlier. Um, we wrote a book that was released this past week. It's about marriage. It is, in a very real sense, it's about a lot of what we, I've talked about today, how it affects our marriages and future. And uh, we have some of those available back there in the, in the cafe. Father, thank you so much for your grace and mercy and your love. We thank you for what you've done. Thank you for our Savior who loves us. Thank you for your patience with us. I want to thank you for this, this passage that clearly Jesus underscores time and again, I may not be what you think I am, but I am everything more than you could ever contain. Lord Jesus, may our response to you always be yes, period. No yes, but, not even a yes, and, no parentheses and no footnotes, just simply yes. Dismiss us, we pray. May we walk in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.